every time I think about growing up here, I think about the artistic experiences I had that made me the performer I am in elementary school of singing in the choir. And then my first ever like big high school musical was Fiddler on the Roof. So I may or may not be singing a song from that. Uh, I think about... I mean, this is a spoiler, but I'm very excited about it. So if you're listening right now, you're going to 100% buy a ticket because I, growing up, especially being like a young gay kid in Missouri, I always wanted to like express myself and maybe felt insecure about certain things. And I always wanted to be a gosh darn Disney princess. And so <laughs> for this show, I'm pulling out a medley of my favorite Disney princess songs that I finally get to sing. And what this really is, is therapy for me. So I'm excited <laughs> for that. I'm so, glad I could provide that opportunity. Truly, the copay is really worth it. <laughs> Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Eric Williams, who's an actor, and he is a comedian. He's from St. Louis. He starred as Buddy the Elf in the Broadway national tour of Elf the Musical. His TV credits include 50 Central on BET, The Today Show, Wendy Williams Show, Pressure Luck, and live stream series Visiting Broadway, and Ed Cofield. He is the artistic director of the New Jewish Theater. He's directed over 16 productions. He was nominated for Outstanding Director of a Comedy and was the three-time nominee for the Kevin Klein Award for Outstanding Direction. He previously served as production manager of the Rep Theater in St. Louis for over 28 years. Welcome, gentlemen, to St. Louis in Tune. Good morning, fellas. Good Thanks morning. for having us. Well, you guys, I'm always awed by people who are in the theater who are either actors and comedians. We've never had comedians, so we're just kind of amateurs over here doing the job. No, this is a master class. Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> and directors, it's fun. A lot, of, a lot of people say our show's a joke, but... <laughs> <laughs> you must be a joker then, Mark. It, it's fun having uh, individuals from the theater on because we've had this, you know, the pandemic thing and not being able to get out and, and enjoy uh, the essence of life through plays or musicals and things like that. And you guys are here to talk about a, a production at the New Jewish Theater, which is going to be tomorrow and Sunday. So Correct. we have you like the day before, which is great. A little song, a little dance, and a little seltzer down your pants. Correct. Right, so let's let's talk about that. I, I think I know the origins, but where does the origins of this come from? Well, uh, so I, I should, first I should just preface and say the last time that Eric uh, performed at the New Jewish Theater was about five weeks before the pandemic. I feel like you That's shut true. down the theater in America. I like to say <laughs> that I was the big kind of finale of the American theater, and then um, I'm bringing it back. All right. So we, uh, we, we've been down – when we come back actually in January with our first uh, traditional theater production um, – uh, it will be twenty something months, and um, uh, in planning for the uh, uh, the return, we we'd booked a couple of cabaret events, and um, the first phone call I made was to Eric. Uh, he was here with his his partner Esther um, in January of nineteen, and they did a great show, and I knew I wanted to bring him back. And then Sharon Hunter is an old dear friend, right, and a mega talent, and I and I actually thought they would be a 
like a great pairing together. And it turns out that that seems to be true. So, And, and Sharon, uh, folks, just so you remember, we did interview Sharon probably a couple months ago when she was opening up the uh, the um, Moonstone Theater Company. Right. And, and she's doing that in Kirkwood in a variety of of uh, plays there. She did. And in fact, I directed her first show for her, which was, really? was uh, it was fun because I hadn't been in rehearsal a long time. And it was a play called Jake's Women by Neil Simon, which I knew, but I had no experience with. And um, it was just great to sort of be back doing what we do. And besides the rep connection here in Webster Groves, you also have a connection with the university, correct? I do. I teach for the Conservatory of Theater Arts. In fact, we just wrapped things up yesterday. Wow. I guess technically... T- today's maybe the last day of the semester, but you know, you really try and just get those things wrapped up and the grades turned in as quickly as you can. <laughs> right, right. So what's this production about? What, what will people expect to see? Give us a little synopsis, not give us all the details. Oh gosh, yeah, I'm not going to give spoilers, but I will tell you it's literally about having fun and being back in a room enjoying theater. I think Sharon and I are both going to bring what we love personally about theater out. And so she's doing a lot of kind of golden age musical movie moments i'm bringing in some classic musical theater but also some comedy and i also like to give a shout out to my grandpa who is like one of the most the biggest supporters of mine he's going to be in the audience he's 92 years old and so i have wow. some some moments to celebrate him and my growing up in st louis bringing some stories about why i love being an actor so much well why do you love being an actor the Muni, Whitfield School, <laughs> Diane Davenport at New City School. Diane, she was my music teacher. What? In, in elementary school. Diane will be at the show on Sunday. Wow. And I, I just, every time I think about growing up here, I think about the artistic experiences I had that made me the performer I am in elementary school of singing in the choir. And then my first ever like big high school musical was Fiddler on the Roof. So I may or may not be singing a song from that. Uh, I think about, I mean, this is a spoiler, but I'm very excited about it. So if you're listening right now, you're going to 100% buy a ticket because I, growing up, especially being like a young gay kid in Missouri, I always wanted to like express myself and maybe felt insecure about certain things. And I always wanted to be a gosh darn Disney princess. And so for this show, I'm pulling out a medley of my favorite Disney princess songs that I finally get to sing. And what this really is, is therapy for me. So I'm excited for that. So I'm glad I could provide that opportunity. Truly. The copay is really worth it. <laughs> so did you start at the Muni? Yeah, I did a lot of shows when I was younger in the youth chorus and the teen chorus. I did, gosh, a lot of different shows. The first time I was in, the, in, in Greece at the Muni, I yeah. was like... 14 and at the end of the show they you know it's like 50 muni teens on stage and just because i'm tall i think they put me at the top of the set for like the final oh you know what it was, it was jesus christ superstar that's what it was and um they put me on top of the set and i you know, like had the big hands up up for the finale moment and of course it was just luck that i was placed there but i remember looking at over twelve thousand people standing on top of the set watching all these Broadway actors in front of me sing. And I was like, this is it. This is the most magical feeling in the world. And I went to high school and did as many shows as I could. I went to college at NYU and I um, lived in New York for many years after college. And I moved to LA literally six weeks ago. So it's like a thrill to be back in St. Louis, especially at this point. It's my first live performance since the pandemic. And when Eddie called me, it was pretty middle to early of the pandemic and he for eddie and i like have such a great relationship and doing my show here with my comedy partner esther was incredible but when he called me i was like the only thing i want to do is perform and so of course it was an immediate yes and i just can't believe it's finally here 
So what's the difference between New York and L.A.? I mean, why is there? You know, I why get, would what would make you move to L.A.? It's a good question. I, I would, think the biggest difference is probably the easiness of life in New York. There's like it's the cultural capital of the world, right? right. There's the Broadway shows, the the food, the the energy. But you know, I've been there for 13 years, and if I want to do laundry, it's World War Three. If I want to <laughs> go to the grocery store, it's like don't get two bags of rice. You can't carry her. So it's like the fact that I could maybe have a car, put a Trader Joe bag in a trunk. I swear, I was like, this is heaven on earth. And sit on the interstate for two hours. Thank you. <laughs> so I can listen to you for longer. I mean, I, it's. Also, I think, listen, people give LA a tough time. They say, they say it's vapid. They say it's, honestly, the people that I've met have, are great. My friends who are there are like killing it, especially in the entertainment world. The quality of life, the nature, having a car, all of it. So, no cold weather. No, I yeah. know. But what about theater? What is the theater like in LA? So another good question. I, th- I think that the two toughest things about leaving New York, one, my friends there, I have an amazing community there, but also not being able to jump on a subway and see a Broadway show. Okay. I definitely took it for granted, right? But in LA, they actually, a lot of my friends there are from New York who are huge theater people. And so there are great, I mean, Center Theater Group, there's the Amundsen Theater, the Pantages, they get amazing tours. There's a Broadway production of A Christmas Carol from New York that is now running in LA. Hamilton has a sit down right now. So I think that if you seek it out, you you 100% can find it. Personally speaking, I did a lot of theater in the early parts of my career. And as I've gotten older and done more comedy, I've realized theater will always be there. And my true dream, if I can be like a little vapid, is that I would love to become a, a star in a TV show and then go back to Broadway, do a, a run of a, a gorgeous show and then go back to LA and like be able to do both. But I think... The theater world is such a hustle and such a long, uh, you have to really endure many, many, many years where I think it will always be my first love, but I want to diversify what I do so I can do all of it. But you've done television before, commercials, yeah, et cetera. I, exactly. I, what ended up happening is I did the national tour of Elf. And then when I got back to New York, I said to myself, I just started a national tour. My career is going to be easy now. It's good. It's done. And then I didn't work for like nine months. And so <laughs> I, I was confused and then just learned that's the way the business goes. And I had a very specific moment at an audition where I walked out and I was like, I just ha- was allowed to sing 15 seconds of a song. I have a bigger impact that I can give than just this 15 second moment. And right. so I immediately started taking classes and networking and got a commercial agent and st- started booking some cool commercials and got to do very funny things that w- became national commercials and then some other TV jobs. And I just realized that there, theater is most performers first love because especially growing up and that's how you can really practice the craft. But then to be able to, Express yourself in other forms is really liberating. I mean, I not only have done the commercial stuff, TV stuff, but uh, live comedy things. Like when Eddie brought Esther and Eric's one-woman show, it was called. We did that in the New York Comedy Festival. We did it in L.A. at Comedy Central's Theater. Did it in St. Louis and Denver. And um, I have a podcast now that is really taking off. And so I think that I've learned in this world especially, if you are ambitious and feel the 
enough energy and chutzpah to put yourself out there, you get many returns. And so to do this cabaret in St. Louis is another way to craft a show. And it's already been fulfilling just to be able to do a Disney princess medley if I want to. And that's why I'm so excited for this performance this weekend, because it's going to be such a liberating moment for people to enjoy an actual show live. And for me as a performer to finally celebrate being in front of people in an actual room. That's great. Well, I think Eric is a, such a great example of, um, uh, uh, in the big umbrella world, a theater artist, but that you are, you understand you can have, you can play both sides of the aisle here, right? You can do theater, you do films and television, podcasting, which has become colossally big. And you're, it's just smart. And, um, uh, it's sort of been fun to watch you sort of, I, I was sort of watching you creeping west and i thought this is it's really gonna go <laughs> oh i hope so eddie i think i think that at the end of the day it is a tough enough industry and business that if you let the decision makers make every single decision for you you're at their whim right versus you know the college i went to the the program i studied and it's called the atlantic theater company it's like you know william h macy and david mamet started it and the whole mantra was create your own work. And I used to think kind of like this is an annoying way for them to just, I don't know, <laughs> tell you you're not going to work. <laughs> Make it easy on them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, do your own thing. Have fun. This was good. We'll see you at the Thank end of the semester. The, yeah, thanks for the money. Uh, but it actually is real. It's that if you do create your own work and just even creating your own opportunities, it does come back in spades. Because if I only audition and wait to get a yes from people behind a table or the gatekeepers, I'm a specific package. I'm a 6'2 right. gay Jew from missouri it's right. not like we need him on a tv show it's like i do believe i have there is a space for me but if i don't create those spaces myself to start then it's going to be an impossible impossible stone to crack well sure. and decision makers in in theater and in show business in general uh we're narrow i am one and and uh we make decisions quickly and uh you kind of grab the first thing you respond to and uh, so that I think there's a huge advantage to sort of creating your own thing because Definitely. then people like me go and, and say, oh, well, he, does, he also does this and he also does that. and Right. Yeah. So is that what an artistic director really does? Like when people see artistic director, what does define that? Well, it's a really uh, – it's a, a slightly misleading uh, title because I think people uh, believe I sit around and eat bonbons and just read plays and – just get to do whatever I want. It's really, uh, I think of it as, as an old school, it's a producing job, which is what I always wanted to do. And um, what I love about it is it allows me to bring people together, like Eric and Sharon. It's a perfect example of two artists I knew, and I thought, this could be a really interesting evening. Right. Or put together a whole cast and creative team for a play. And um, I also believe it's really important that I listen to my audience. Uh, we're doing it for them. I, if it were up to me, we'd be doing very obscure plays that nobody really cares about. So I, you know, I'm there to serve an audience. And in this case, not only the audience at the Jewish community center, but the greater St. Louis audience as well. Which is interesting that you said that because I'm going to, I'm going to shift back to Eric for a second, that as you're doing this cabaret or as you're doing your shtick, as you're doing your comedy or singing your princess songs, mm -hmm. how much are you interacting and watching the audience response, which then propels you either further down that road or like, okay, we need to take a different road because they're not, they're not buying into Oh, yeah. Good question. I think that's the magic of comedy specifically is it's so much of a conversation with the audience. And so what I'm excited for this show is that there are a lot of obvious set songs that 
I'm going to be performing, but the banter between and the shtick between, I think, really is I'm trying to treat it more of that dialogue and combine the forms of cabaret with comedy and storytelling. And I think that based on the audience response, it will propel me into one direction or another. And honestly, that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see the vibe. I think we have a Saturday night show tomorrow and I think that it might feel different from a Sunday matinee mm-hmm. and both will be equally special and mm-hmm. exciting. But what I have found with shows like this and performance is that the audience and the performer just want to feel like they are in for a special and unique experience. And so really referring to the things around us in the room happening in that moment, I think is the magic of theater. And, you know, a very random uh, example I'm thinking of is I saw a Broadway play that before James Corden was like James Corden and unfortunately was cast in every musical, different discussion. However, <laughs> he was in One Man, Two Governors, a play on Broadway that was from London. And there were so many different sticky things that they would bring someone up from the audience for audience interaction, participation, and then something went crazy awry and the audience member caught on fire. And it was like, you were horrified. <laughs> I found, I took, I took someone else to see the show and the same exact thing happened with the same exact audience member. Turns out it was an audience plant. Oh. And you don't know that though. And so when you're watching it for your first time, you're like, Oh my God, I'm watching a show where this poor woman from Schenectady, her hair is on fire. What is going to happen? And it turns out it's an actor in the audience, but it's an example of like the audience, if they feel like it is happening just for them in that moment, it is so magical. And I want to kind of translate that into this show where it actually is going to be for the one of two times in front of an audience in St. Louis right during a pandemic. I think it's it's all going to feel incredibly prescient. Is that the word? Yeah. I think that's right. And one of the things that I think is amazing about, and I was was hyper aware of this almost the minute I met Eric, which is... uh, truly gifted and hilarious communities. And Eric is hilarious, but he also has this, you have to have sort of this odd sixth sense where you're sort of monitoring what's going on, not because you're waiting to hear your laughs. It's about knowing how can I turn mm-hmm. this joke? And it's, it's that thing about, I saw Eric do a, a little shtick when he was here before with Esther and Eric. And I, and I could just see this glint in his eye and he knew <laughs> That he could get a rolling laugh, right? And it's, it's. I, I'm always sort of like amazed by that. Where'd that Where'd that comedy thing come from? Were you one of those kids in elementary school that <laughs> had written the teacher wrote on the report card tells too many jokes? Or I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think a lot of it is probably like defense mechanisms. I think I have three brothers, and maybe there was the like the trying to get a. T- I have a twin brother. I think they're. Uh, my, my parents are both silly. My dad is definitely a jokester. Um, I think there's a lot of, cause the, the other side of it that's, I think I've always had to really reckon with is being the type A Virgo needing to get the good grades, but also wanting to express myself. And so I probably was able to find a way of being the class clown while still not messing things up for the teacher, which was helpful. But the creative side of that that's difficult, I think, is I really came across, especially with creating my own work and the show with Esther, is being a rule follower and only trying to get quote-unquote good grades or do things the textbook way does not serve you creatively and so learning about looking vulnerable or messing up and that failure is not the end of the world i literally will talk in therapy about feeling like if i fail at something creatively 
everything will end. And even with the pop, my podcast with the show with Esther, I swear this sounds dramatic, but I was so nervous to be, cause the, basically the conceit of the show is very simple to explain. It's a comedy show. It's about two best frenemies. We call it, that both have a one person, a one woman show, a one person show, and they both show up to the theater and it turns out the theater double booked them and they have to figure out how to do their shows at the exact same time. Wow. And so it's like a conceit of these two friends, but also like they clearly have a lot of tension beneath it all. They're trying to perform their one person show throughout trying to do them at the same time. You learn their relationship. We tell jokes about our lives, about our friendship. And it's very much inspired by our real friendship, but also very much heightened. And I, lo- we love the idea, but I, before we performed it for the first time, what sounds dramatic is I had such anxiety that it wouldn't work, that the audiences would not get it. It would just completely flop. I had stomach pain. I was like, I went to a doctor. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Mm. He was like, you're anxious. It's fine. And we did the show and it was a huge success and it taught me, even if we were to fail, it would still be okay. We do a new draft or a new idea. But I think that it's to the long answer to your question is like, I've always wanted to express myself in maybe clowny ways, but I've had to learn that being a grade A student is actually creatively not the, the path to really make a big, uh, splash. Because you're continually learning from what you're doing. Exactly. And I think that maybe in this world right now, it's where there's so much pressure around your grades, where you go to college, mm-hmm. your job, where how you look to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can serve people in many ways of like showing success. But I think in other ways, it, it really takes the opportunity away to be messy. And I think that's probably when I, when I was in high school, actually to bring it like to my background in performing here, I went to Whitfield school and I remember watching the older kids perform and um, they, I realized they don't care about looking dumb. And so I was like, that's the, that's the literal key to performing. It's okay to look dumb. And that's what, which is true. Actually. It is. Yeah. It is because a lot of people watch shows cause they're like, I could never do that. Cause I'm too afraid of what I look like. Whereas right. like, I have to be okay with looking silly. Right. You have to be vulnerable. Somet- yeah. Sometimes I'll encounter a, 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 an actor that, it is playing a role where they're really uncomfortable because they don't want to look like a bad guy to mm. the audience or to the, it, for instance, and it's a really kind of weird thing to navigate. Yeah. And they have to learn to, they have to be willing to be vulnerable to be a jerk. And to, to tell the story, I think. Story. Like, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating. And I do think sometimes audiences conflate, like if you're playing a villain character, they think you're a villain of a person, which is like, well, I guess, and that really demonstrates that you've, done that role yeah. to a place where they're they're vilifying you and right. don't and care exactly. for you. They bought the whole thing. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Whether it's true or not. Right. That's very interesting. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're talking to Eric Williams and Ed Cofield about the performance that's going to be at the New Jewish Theater tomorrow and Sunday. And let's get the times for that. I, I didn't give those out. Tomorrow Ed. night is at seven thirty and Sunday is at two o'clock. And if they want t- people want tickets, what should they do? Ed? They can call. They can go to newjewishtheater.org, or they can call three one four 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 two three two three eight. What was that number again? Three one four 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 two three two three eight. And our friend Amy Tucker would be happy to sell them tickets. Can they get tickets at the door? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Tickets at the door. A little song. A little dance. A little seltzer down your pants. <laughs> December 18th and 19th. So check that out, the new Jewish theater. And uh, let's talk some more about the performance. So, Ed, when did you get your start in theater? And what was the, what was oh the thing God. that drew you in? 
Uh, I was in my first play when I was five. I was in a, a stellar production of Winnie the Pooh mm. where I played like a, a rabbit nobody's ever heard of. Mm. Um, and I realized even at a young age that I am not a performer and I'm not an actor. Um, but I have always seemed to be able to um, lead people, organize people, put people together. So it, it sort of was a natural uh, progression to end up where I've ended up. I was at the rep for 28 years as their production uh, manager, and that was an incredible uh, experience and an incredible education. And um, it 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 taught me a lot of what's made me successful at the New Jewish Theater, frankly, which is great. And um, I came to St. Louis actually in 1989 to work for a company that no longer exists called Theater Project Company. Oh, I heard of it. Yeah, and they were uh, they were around a long time, and I, I did about a half season with them, and I picked up a national tour, and I came back, and I was waiting for a summer stock job to start. And Steve Wolf called me and said, we're looking for a production manager. Are you interested? And I was like, I could do that. And I thought it would be in St. Louis two years. And now I'm, I've been here thirty something years at this point. Wow. Yeah, and that was you were from New Mexico, right? Uh, yeah, I'm born originally in, born in Roswell, New Mexico, Roswell. which Roswell. explains a lot, oh, doesn't it? When people when people know that, they're like, "Oh, you make so much more." Why so he has an antenna coming out of his head? Exactly. <laughs> and my and my family's now in Santa Fe, so oh, okay. I love, it. I love New Mexico. It's beautiful. I, it is. I, I've 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 hiked the, the the mountains of New Mexico for like two weeks once with a 45 pound pack on my back had to tie everything up in the trees to keep it away from the bears mm. right oh but oh my gosh i think it is the most beautiful country mm. part of our country that we have is is new mexico it's fantastic yeah, yeah. what do you what do you like about it uh i will tell you it's two things there is something particularly but in northern new mexico less so in roswell if i'm just being honest <laughs> there is something uh in the and it's a little ethereal and this is a little woo-woo but there is something about the light and the air and the mountains that is mm. just kind of takes you to a different place. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's just magical. Yeah, if, you, if no, if you've never been there, I highly recommend going to New Mexico. Uh, I love Colorado, but I just felt that New Mexico was just a much, it's greener, I yeah. think, and it's just beautiful, beautiful country. I, I've been to Tucumcari. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I know yeah. Tucumcari well. In fact, if you drive from St. Louis, and run across the uh, the top the panhandle of Texas, then you have to drive through Tucumcari to get to Santa Fe. Gotcha, gotcha. So we were talking off the air a little bit about the challenges of theater and breaking in and having, I should say, thinking that you should be at certain points of certain times in your career or at certain ages. And Ed, you were talking about the influence of social media, uh, positive and negative. Would you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's become uh, – it's really become a necessary evil. Mm. Uh, First of all, it's it's an incredibly economical and effective way to reach a great number of people. But it has to be curated all the time, paid attention to all the time. And I am uh, perfectly competent on social media, but I'm not brilliant on social media at all. And uh, it has been just fascinating to see that that change. And, and, you know, when I started at The Rep, for example – We'd, I when my first year at the rep, I didn't even have a computer. I did everything on a typewriter. Wow! <laughs> so well, it was just after World War II. But you know, carbon paper, hundred percent. And um, uh, 
and, and now it's just it's let's the you know the first thing a lot of people do is check their social media. The first thing I do every morning is check social media for the New Jewish Theater, hands down. Hmm. In fact, I meant to post before, I, but we'll do a picture. Darn it! Put it up. So, Eric, you were doing the national tour of Elf for. How long was that? So what's actually funny kind of relates to the social media conversation because I I did the show for the first time in 2014. So I the long story short is that I auditioned for it in 2013, did not get cast. Next, And I this role I knew it was for me. I was like, it's a silly, tall, funny, the, the music is in my range, it's comedy. And so I auditioned for the next year, had nine callbacks. It was like a two-month audition process. Wow. And then... I booked the role and then social media in 2014 was still not as big. I mean, obviously it's different right. now. And so I remember like kind of leaning into it. I got some like new followers cause I was performing it, but it wasn't that huge. And then I did the show again in 2018, a few years went by and they had me back and um, social media had already really taken a, a turn. And so I started putting up a lot of comedy videos as buddy or in costume behind the scenes things and I gained some thousands of followers just because it was such a great way to reach people. And I learned through that about, again, being vulnerable and authentic on social media is a way to connect. And so I first was resisting TikTok for a while because, of, you know, they're going to steal your identity or because it's just like another thing that I, I, I don't want to worry about. And I learned that it came more naturally to me than other forms. And so I've been able to grow a pretty big audience on TikTok. And it's, again as a necessary evil the industry appreciates when you have a big following and so it was my goal in the last year to really produce my own things and get a bigger audience and i was able to do that and in the new year too i think continuing to put ideas out there and it's so crazy how tiktok and social media can connect you immediately to people all over the world i mean i've had videos that are so silly get you know five hundred thousand views and people in Ireland are commenting on it, and it's 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 amazing, but also can take a ton of time and work. Yeah, it's you know there's been a shift in the casting world uh, at the Broadway level, and certainly films and television. So if you are if Eric were, had never been in, as Buddy the Elf, and he was being considered now, they would look at all of his social media hmm. to see what its level of following was, because it's a way to en- enhance sales. Right? I mean, I, yeah. hate to, I hate to be crass, but that's the yeah. truth. So as as you look at that, there's positive and negatives about yeah, that. I, it's also, I mean, it's about balance. It's about the way you look at it. I think some people make it their entire lives right. and it becomes, uh, there's zero balance. Right. Whereas other people, I think I, just like you, Eddie, like we, I think we know how to use it, but I'm not naturally incredible at it. And right. so I've had to find a way to put some work into it get out of my own head during the pandemic i had the show with my friend esther going i right before the pandemic i mean i'd all i shot a really great big commercial that ended up getting canceled because it the messaging didn't work with the pandemic and uh, and i shot it in february i think and mm-hmm. so i had all this momentum that was cut short and so i found myself sitting at home without a job or anything to do and so i channeled all of my anxiety being in the epicenter of the pandemic in new york city which was horrible and I started making a ton of videos, like and like I edited the crap out of them. I made these videos about iconic movies and why they're incredibly gay. Like, and it was a very silly, you know, why is the movie 
Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock. Like, why did that speak so much to my gay little heart? And I did like 10 videos like that. And I spent, I'm not proud to say the editing, t- I was like 12 hours per video. It's a minute long video, minute and a half, but I put so many little t- tricks in there. And a lot of it was just my defense mechanism of not paying attention to the outside world. So I just right. sit on my computer and edit all day after I filmed it. And through, and I would post it and I would have my husband, I would go up to him and be like, I don't know if people are going to like it. And back into the conversation of allowing myself to fail. And he, he had to talk me down so many times. And it was almost like a self boot camp to be like, put the darn video up. If people don't like it, whatever, make a new one. But it's again, social media. I think people did really enjoy it. And that's actually what led into my podcast. So it organically happened, but I enjoy social media for that because you do get an immediate sense of being able to express yourself. The only downfall, of course, is A, if people hate it, B, if you say something wrong and you get canceled, or C, if nothing happens at all. So it's many different routes it can take. This is kind of like a dual question related to that. Has social media replaced the quote-unquote critic who would review you in the paper the next day? Mm-hmm. And, and with that is how much do you really – I know we we put emphasis in that because we we always would want likes or we want followers, right. but the essence of what you really want to put out there for people, genuinely, regardless of how people are rating you on social media, uh, it's side by side. I don't think sort of traditional critics and reviewers will ever be replaced, um, although that world has shifted greatly. But it's sort of a. Uh, 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 cousin that's a little bit of a beast actually mm-hmm. um it you know w- particularly in the theater i'm sure it's tr- true in film and television we rely on word of mouth and social media is another version of word of mouth right right and it now, gives a voice i think to pe- the people like i there's a very specific example of the musical beetlejuice on broadway it clo- they it got closed partly because the producer of the music man had already had a contract for that theater and even though the music man could have gone to a different theater they ended up forcing beetlejuice to close early people were incredibly upset because they loved the show especially young people through tiktok and social media love the music love the actors and they ended up bringing the show back to a different theater because the audience spoke up so much on social media and so i think it like eddie is saying i think it gave a voice to the audience and that audience then their voices were louder because of social media and then it caused the show to open again reminds me of star trek exactly only lasted two years but there was so much outcry on the reruns Mm -hmm. like where and letters that were written and maybe phone calls that were generated that where is this why aren't we doing this anymore? yeah right very interesting so Put yourself in the position of being an audience member, and what do you want to get out of your performance tomorrow and Sunday? And I'm going to shift this a little bit for both of you. And what do you want the audience to get out of as you've helped produce this and bring these two individuals together to do this performance? Do you want to go first, Eddie? Yeah, I will. Um, Uh. Well, for me, it is always there's a conversation that happens in the dark room. I mean, the tradition of telling stories around a, a fire in a dark area is, goes way back to the beginning of time. And there is something for me that it, it happens always, and it, it can be a sort of big event or it can be a small event, but 
people walk into a room and they share an experience and they leave changed always a little bit, sometimes a lot. And to me, that's the reason we do this. And I think people are anxious to get back into that dark room and hear stories again. And so I think this is, you know, we're, we're launching the rocket back to that. I think to piggyback off that as a performer and a creator, my main goal is just to make people feel seen. And I think what I've realized is even if a story is specific to me and my experience, everyone has felt different or maybe not valued or not understood. And I think that as an audience member, I'm going to walk out of this show mostly remembering how I felt, which was excited, happy, thrilled, amused. And then beyond that, that little bit of change I want them to feel is like, I feel a little more understood. Do you feel that actors and directors value is not the right word, but are cognizant of that when they're performing or before they perform? Or is, is the routine so routine that it has lost that spontaneity or that vibe that you guys both described? That's a good question. I think that it definitely varies on the person and also the level that they are at. And not in terms of just their career level. I mean just their own relationship with a role or with a show. I think most performers always feel a sense of wanting to bring that role to life as much as they can. But I think specific, especially with comedians, feel always a kindred connection to making sure that their vulnerability shines to make people feel understood. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I also think that there is, um, uh, I think there's a need for the connection. I, I will tell you when I direct a show, and I've directed a lot of shows, once that show is open, I never go back to see it again. because Well, for two reasons. First of all, it's not my show. It's their show. Mm-hmm. And it's an organic living thing, and it is going to change um, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot. And I really try to allow the actors I work with to take ownership of it once it's opened uh, with within sort of parameters that I set. And I never want to go back and see how my work has been enhanced in the wrong way. Huh. <laughs> which sometimes happens, <laughs> but it's, I've always felt like uh, you, uh, you have to walk away. And it, it, it sometimes puzzles the artists I work with because they're like, you don't come to see us. I was like, well, first of all, I like to go to bed at eight o'clock. And secondly, <laughs> yeah. you're on your own. Mm. You know, Sidney Grossberg, Ron, uh, Grossberg Ranga said yeah. the exact same thing. You know, I, once I'm there and it starts, I'm done. I'm yeah. out of town. Mm. Yeah. And you give parameters and you let go. How do most directors do that or is that something that, you know, is um is individualized? It it's a little individualized. I mean there there are some you know, a lot of the directors I worked with at the rep and I worked with some of the most famous directors in America. Uh, they'd be in town for their four week gig and they'd leave and they would never come back. Um sometimes if it was a local director, they would show up uh, sometime to the point of annoyance. Mm. And I just feel like you gotta you've made the souffle, you gotta let the souffle either rise or fall. Right. I agree. Sometimes if they're like constantly talking about the souffle, I'm like, it's a souffle. We know what it is. Uh, you can't change the taste. Right. That's a good point. Interesting. So how are the cats? Oh, my cats are great. In fact, What are their names? Uh, Barnaby and Cornelius. So they're named after the two characters in Hello, Dolly. Ah! Uh, um, because I happened to see them. I acquired these cats right after I saw Beth Level in 
as Dolly Levi at the Muni, and she was fantastic. Uh, and Barnaby is a uh, uh, black and white tuxedo, and he's 26 pounds. Wow. And his brother Cornelius is a little orange tabby, and he's like a normal nine-pound cat. And they're they're fantastic. I don't know what I would do without them. And they both get along? They get along great. Now, I will tell you, you uh, when Barnaby hops up in the bed in the middle of the night, you, it's like a fourth grader. He's big. <laughs> you know something's in the bed with you. Not a fourth grader, no. And Cornelius is a little sleeker, actually. <laughs> Kaboom. <laughs> so where <laughs> where is theater going? You, we've had some very interesting conversations today about social media and directing and acting and, you know, how you have confidence mm-hmm. and, you know, doing a, a variety of things. Where is it going to be in five or ten years in your in your vision? We are in such a different place than we were even the month before the pandemic. There's uh, because of some of the political upheaval in this country, particularly related to Black Lives Matter, but other things as well. Um, we are going our business is going through a reckoning where there is a, a huge emphasis on diversity and inclusion as there should be and there should have been. Um, so that I think is an ongoing conversation. And um, I think there's a, uh, at a sort of more esoteric level, there's a conversation about the disparity in the nonprofit world where frequently theaters are not paying their artists a living wage. Mm-hmm. So I think that, plays in to a lot. And then I think it will be very curious to see. Um, I'm very excited that we will open in January with a play called Laughter on the 23rd floor, but there's a new variant out and I don't know what that's going to do to the audience. Uh, I know just from talking to colleagues in town and around the country, you know, people are playing to a third of the houses they used to play to. And I think it's going to be that way for a while. I, my, my dream is that the shows that are getting produced more are, more gambles of diversity and inclusion because I think thinking about the the show, the music man on Broadway right now, it's with Hugh Jackman, son foster who I will see her in anything, but I think there's less, some producers are feeling there's a less of a risk you can take to get the seats filled by only having a movie star or doing a show that people know. But the other side of the coin is that there's also this emphasis on inclusion and having people feel seen that they're doing plays that are more original plays, maybe a little more of daring subject matter. And I think my hope is that as the theater moves towards the future, it takes more and more gambles on shows that are original and unique to a specific audience that ends up being universal and a huge hit. I mean, when you think about even something like Hamilton, people keep bringing that up because it was such a monster hit, but on the other side of it, producers now want to make a huge hit like that. And are they going to be willing to take a risk again on a show like that? Or are they still going to go for more of the surefire successes? So I think I don't know where it's going, but I hope that it continues to really invest in original voices. I agree with what both of you said there. How much does the bottom line play from investors in what you were talking about, Eric, having something that people know and then maybe having a couple things that people don't know yeah. and getting out there. How much does that bottom line play into all it, this? It's tricky and it, it varies. Uh, it's very different from the commercial for-profit uh, theater world versus the not-for-profit theater world that I'm in. But uh, the show that just is closing in New York, uh, that was sort of a modest musical. And I can't remember what it was, but it was capitalized at $17 million. That's a lot of money to put on the line. No kidding. And, um, you know, my, as a not-for-profit... Is it Diana? It was Diana. Thank you. It's Diana the Musical, based on the life of Princess Diana. 
And uh, whether you have something great to say about it or something not great to say about it, that's a lot of it's a big investment. Now yeah. they're they're a curious commodity because they had a big uh, influx of money because they cut a deal with Netflix. So I expect it actually made money, but it's not selling enough tickets to to keep it up. If it's a seventeen million dollar musical, it may be costing them as much as a million a week to keep the doors open. Wow! Um, and you know, my goal was to just uh, break even. Right. 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 Please, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pay pay the rent, the electric bill, and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the gas bill, and everything else. Last questions for you guys. I always ask this of, of people who are in the in the industry, whether it's music, an artist, uh, an actor, actress, director. What advice do you give budding actors? We'll start with you, Eric, first, uh, to continue to hone their craft. What do, hmm. what do you suggest to them? I mean, I think it's a lot of it is taking risks and allowing yourself to fail and expressing yourself in any way that feels natural. I think when you, like we've been saying, when society, you feel like society is putting rules upon you, you can only do a certain show, you can only go to a certain college and then follow a certain step. That's doing yourself a disservice. So my advice is to, if you want to make a short film about a silly thing you saw one day, make the short film because you're not going to be Spielberg today. It might take you a few weeks, a few months, a few years, but you have to make, take the risks and make the silly things in order to learn enough to become what you want to be. Yeah, I agree. I think it's about taking the risk, and I can't tell you the number of times I spoke to somebody about an opportunity, and they're like, can you do X, Y, or Z? And I'd be like, absolutely. And I would, had never done X, mm. Y, or Z, but I thought if I can get my foot in the door, I'll figure it out. Right, right. Great advice. Great advice. The show is A Little Song, A Little Dance, A Little Seltzer Down Your Pants at the New Jewish Theater. It is December 18th and 19th. And if you want tickets, you can go to the New Jewish Theater website. And I'm trying to get that right here. It is jccstl.com, and you go for the arts area, arts and ideas. And, Ed, what are those tickets, uh, that number again? Uh, The box office is 314-442. Three two three eight. That's three one four 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 two three two three eight for tickets, or you can just show up and boom. Absolutely, that that'd be great. We we always encourage people to get out, especially now because of the uh, being, you know, at home and kind of being not being able to see anything live. Live performances, whether it's a, a concert, whether it's a theater group, whatever it is, it's unbelievable. It's just like it's freeing. Mm-hmm. And we saw the Tennessee Williams production of. Um, Oh, streetcar? Oh no, uh, glass menagerie. Glass menagerie, yeah. Down. So down do that. you know about this? They did it actually in the glass menagerie apartment building in the parking lot. No, unbelievable! Was, <gasps> it was really cool. Oh my gosh, so cool! Yeah. So it was so much fun. So much fun. It really was. Yeah, we encourage people just to get out. And are there COVID protocols? Yeah, we have to follow. You have to show proof of vaccination and a, a valid ID, and you have to wear a mask. Okay. If you're in the audience, I'm not making Eric and Sharon wear masks. Because they're far too pretty. I mean, thank we, you. We, we want you to be seen. <laughs> it's always fun to have uh, theater theater folks in, musicians in, artists in. Thank you for coming. Thank I you. It's been so really much. enjoyable. It's been our pleasure. Yeah, truly. We've had a great time. So, folks, if you um, get a chance tomorrow night, 
or it's a Sunday afternoon and the matinee starts at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock. Go to jccstl.com or you can call for tickets 314-442-3238. That is for the performance of a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. I looked that up. And that was actually a uh, Mary Tyler Moore. It's a Mary stick. Tyler Moore reference, but I actually—it's funny you said I forgot that that's where it originated, <laughs> and I thought I'm a genius. This is so smart. <laughs> yeah, and you are. I go to the marketing department at the J, who's full of unbelievably great, talented people. Like that's not original. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> it's a funny title. You pulled it out of your memory banks. I did. We've been talking to Eric Williams, actor and artistic director Ed Cofield. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks Thanks so much. We're glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Strickland.